Well, good morning, Cornerstone. I hope, seriously, I hope all of you are doing well. I feel like I haven't spoken for such a long time. In fact, it's been since last year. So let me just start off saying this, because I don't know if I've had a chance to say this. Just, just Happy New Year to all of you. Now, let me start off with something that happened last week that I just think is important to kind of roll us into where we're going. I'm not sure how it was for you, but the events that took place over a week ago in our nation's capital, I think, at least for me, were just pretty disturbing. To see the Capitol building overrun by rioters and, and witness the loss of life that kind of left me, I guess in a word, just dumbstruck. Then when I saw the flags and the posters with the name of Jesus being waved in all of the bedlam and the unrest, I just, I found myself irate. I See, I, I don't think anyone can study the life of Christ or even the early church that we find in the New Testament and conclude that this is something that God would, would ever condone. And then when I heard and read of Christians seeking to justify the mobs by maybe, you know, comparing them to the heinous behavior we witnessed over the summer in the riots, it, it just caused my heart to grow sad. Now, it struck me that, that this, in some ways, is the price we pay when you kind of take nationalism and Christianity and you, you mix them together. The two are combined into this kind of just noxious concoction that are, I think, just poisonous to the gospel. What took place in that event had nothing whatsoever to do with Christ's kingdom. But I don't know how you guys do it, for oftentimes I look at those things and it just becomes very personal. And it really got me thinking for almost a year, right? The, the church, including ours, has been bombarded by one difficulty after another. We face the impact of, of a virus, the, the closing of our campuses, and you know, therefore, I think just the hindrance, or even in some ways, the elimination of how we do ministry. There's been social and political unrest that's left us divided. There's been emotional and just psychological, I think, turmoil. I was even thinking the other day just about the fear of conspiracy that's gripped so many. And then there's just this awareness that I think for many of us, we've known it, but maybe for others, we no longer live in a, in a God-centered society. And, and you know, maybe we never did. But for all of us in some way, we've, we've kind of entered into new territory. At, at times, me, you, we've, we've responded well, and <laughs> other times, right, we just haven't. Sometimes we wanted to fight even if God never asked us to. Other times, you know, we, we've wanted to to curl into the fetal position. And many, I think, have just wanted to run away. The shock of our times has, has entered into our lives and the classic just fight, flight, or freeze responses have just kicked into high gear. In many ways, I, I've come to believe that these responses that we have are, are just, they're based on fear. Or maybe if you don't like the word, because maybe you don't think that you're afraid, then let's just say it this way, we were very uncomfortable. Every areas of our life has been thrown up in the air, and in a lot of ways, we don't know what's gonna happen next. We kinda keep waiting for the next shoe to drop, and to be honest, I've felt that way. As a pastor, there have been like so many times when I have wrestled in my spirit with God, 
There have been times I wanted to fight. At times I've wanted to run to a small community in Montana. And still other times I've found myself numb and confused. And by the way, just so you know this, that's normal. Every person in the Bible that faithfully walked with God has felt that way in some time or another. This time in which we found ourselves, I think a word that just is, I've used over and over with people, it's just kind of daunting. However, the Bible's clear that we will find ourselves in anguish the way we do now because we live in a fallen world where sin reigns in the hearts and the minds of people. Sometimes they're suffering, right, because of our own foolishness. Maybe, maybe it's the foolishness of, of those that are around us, including the foolishness of our leaders. Other times there may be suffering because God is bringing discipline to bear in our lives. And, and there are definitely more reasons. But Jesus promised that in this world, we'll suffer. We can't escape it. There isn't a human being alive on this planet who isn't acquainted with troubles in some way. What is unique to Christians, however, are, are two things that, that I think are gonna be important to where we're going today. We know that in this world there will be suffering, right? Because Jesus promised it. But he also went on, here's the second thing, we can take heart because Jesus said he has overcome the world. And that second reality is loaded with promise that I, I want to explore today from God's word. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up to Paul's letter to the Colossians. And, and here's kind of what I want to try to do this morning. As we look at 2021, I want to try to change your mind about this moment in history in which we find ourselves by not only looking at suffering, but more importantly, I want to get our eyes off of the circumstances in which we find ourselves and, and on to Jesus Christ. I want you to see that because Jesus Christ has overcome the world, and according to 1 John, if you are in Christ, you too are an overcomer, that we can approach the coming days with a sense of expectation in the suffering. In other words, this time that God has placed us in has opportunity in it. But the only way we will be able to walk this path that God has given us to plod, and I would even say this is crucial where we're going, is by gaining a greater and greater growing image of Christ in our minds. So to do this, I want, I want to look at the way in which Paul first, he, he, he saw suffering as a God-ordained opportunity for us, and then how his view of Christ compelled him to enter in with confidence. So look with me now just at verse 24, and, and let's look at the opportunity found in suffering. Now Paul tells the Colossians this in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now the first part seems kind of strange to us, right? He, he, he connects suffering with rejoicing. But, but I would say this, before you write off this statement or maybe explain it away by assuming that like Paul was some kind of super Christian, we need to get why he would write it. The reason that what Paul does when he connects the realities of suffering and joy, and, and here's the promise that I was talking about, is because when he suffers, look down in there, he, he fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. But again, sometimes like, what does that even mean? Now, I don't have time to kind of unpack this fully, but he, here it is in a nutshell. Let me, let me see if I can encapsulate it. 
What our suffering does in this case is that it presents the the in-person sufferings of Christ in us to the people for whom Jesus Christ died. We know that God created people to display him, and, and even in suffering, God intends to show himself off through his people. Paul knew that the gospel must be carried by people of the gospel, and those people of the gospel now fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ by walking through suffering for people to see Christ. Paul sees in a very cool way his his own suffering and our suffering as this like beautiful, visible reenactment of sorts in some ways of the sufferings of Christ so that our world might see his love for them. And this is key. So, So what this means, I believe, is that God intends for the suffering of Christ to be presented to the world through the suffering of his people. God allows and ordains the body of Christ, the church, to to experience like some of the suffering he experienced. And this includes suffering that is part of just living in a fallen world. So that when we offer the Christ of the cross to people, they see the Christ of the cross in us. They get to watch how Christ faced suffering by how we suffer. This truth is what what makes our suffering different from how the world suffers. We display God, again, our created purpose in the suffering. Now, now by this, I don't mean like somehow, right, we enjoy pain and suffering. We're not a bunch of masochists. But we don't avoid it because in the pain and suffering, we are given the privilege to demonstrate the hope of the gospel. This is the truth of what Paul presented in 2 Corinthians 4. Just just go there with me. It's just a couple pages over it. And look at chapter 4, verse 8. I want you to see this because it's so important. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. He says, We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And now watch this, verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This means that we don't have to avoid suffering. Instead, we need to enter the suffering of our world with our world and on behalf of our world so that they might see Christ in us. I truly believe this is the point by the time you get to Colossians 1.27 when he says in this idea of to them being the world, God chose in an amazing way to make known how great among the Gentiles, again, the world that's watching, what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now let me just focus for a second on that word glory because I don't think we get it like we should. Did you know that the sun is 91.5 million miles away from Earth? Yet right now, and and I'm not outside, but if I were outside, I would be feeling its warmth. In other words, there's this almost perfect ball that over one million Earths could fit inside that's hanging in space, which generates its energy through nuclear fusion that allows us to just live and, and enjoy life. We are are sitting on a giant ball of water and dirt and molten lava that's spinning a thousand miles per hour, traveling around the sun at almost 19 miles per second, 
Yet if you ride a tilt-a-whirl at the carnival that comes to town, you know, and I've done this before, you're gonna throw up. And it only spins at about six and a half revolutions per minute. Stop and think about it just for a second. Does that just astound you and make you almost kind of feel small? Do you ever in the midst of your life, right, just stop and realize that our God made all of this and it wasn't an accident? And all of this, this wonder that makes us feel small and, and insignificant is telling us something. The Bible tells us that it declares the glory. There's our word of God. Yet glory is a word we often don't kind of know what to do with. We, we often throw it around without understanding the significance of it. The Hebrew word which is used for glory in the Old Testament has the, the simple meaning of just heaviness or weight. It, it was used kind of in everyday speech to express like the worth of a person, maybe in the material sense, and then also to express, you know, maybe the ideas of importance or greatness or honor or splendor or power and, and so on. So when David penned that the heavens declare the glory of God, he meant that we are intended to look into the immensity and power and wonder of space and just feel awe. Oh. In fact, I don't think it's any wonder that David also wrote, right, when we, when, we, when we look up to the heavens which your fingers made and we see the moon and we see the stars which, which God uniquely and sovereignly put in place, he says just in there, of what importance is the human race? That you should even notice them, he says. Of what importance is mankind that you should pay attention to them? Yet the Bible tells us that God does pay attention to us. In fact, he chose to make humanity the, the object of his love. And even though we constantly miss the glory of God and drift into living as if somehow God doesn't exist, it's something that the Bible calls sin. He faithfully and patiently just continues to love those that are his. So, so go back with me now, just carrying that idea to the book of Colossians and, and like almost like peering into the depths of space, what Paul's connecting here is that suffering in this way is supposed to produce weight and heaviness to all that witness it. The world is supposed to look at, the, at just the immensity and power and wonder of our suffering, and some are just supposed to feel, oh, there's something about how we suffer that's different than the world that's supposed to, as the Apostle Peter suggested, demand an answer for the hope that's in you. Church history is just it's, it's a wash with astounding examples of, of God's people who entered suffering this way. Think of like one of my favorite stories from the book of Acts, Paul and Silas, right? They're, they're singing in the Philippian jail, which led to a jailer and his family seeing Christ after a great earthquake. Think of Corey and Betsy Ten Boom in the concentration camp being, being asked, why has your God of love put you here? To which Betsy looked back and replied, to obey him, to show him off. We just marked the 65th anniversary of the death of, of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and a couple other guys who were, who were murdered while trying to bring the gospel to a tribe in Ecuador. So think of Elizabeth Elliott, his wife, and Rachel Saint, the, the sister of Nate. They returned with love into the suffering 
And they brought forgiveness in the gospel to the Aki Indians who had savagely murdered Elizabeth's husband and Rachel's brother. Think of women like Johnny Erickson Tata and the, she's a quadriplegic who sits in a wheelchair with a paintbrush clenched between her teeth, bringing beauty out of her pain. And then later, and one time when I talked to her, we just talked about this, she loves to sing. And so she sings at the top of her lungs all throughout the building that's designed for them to work in. Was it difficult for her? Yes. But it also was their opportunity. You see, the world doesn't need for us to fight. Nowhere in the Bible are we called to fight the people around us or run away or freeze. The Bible instead beckons us into suffering to demonstrate the love of God to the world. In a powerful way, God displays his glory in the suffering because people see Christ in us, the hope of glory. People need to see what Paul told the Corinthians in his second letter to them, that somehow there's this light momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I dare you to bring the most hardened and sophisticated atheist in the world into the presence of, of such redemptive suffering. Let him experience, right, just firsthand such faith. And I defy him to deny the reality of God whose son suffered for sin with any conviction in his voice. I think suffering can only make a person feel small because they sense glory. Redemptive suffering is just so powerful. And that is what God has called us to, not fighting or, or fleeing or freezing. Or before, and this is so important to it, we, we've captured this idea of suffering. But before we kind of plunge headfirst into the ocean of suffering that, that is all around us in the world in which we live, we have to understand what compels us to do so. Paul never asked people to just simply just suffer for suffering's sake. He always gave them reasons for it. And, and in the verses that precede this text that we're looking at, he gives them the reason. Now, how Paul goes about this for the Colossians is by, I believe, and, and biblical scholars believe, painting one of the, the loftiest images of Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. Paul presented him, right, as just the center of the universe. Not only as the, the active creator, but also as the, the recipient of creation in his taking on of human flesh. Christ was and is the visible image of the invisible God containing within himself, Paul talks about in Colossians 2.9, the fullness of deity. Because of his divine nature, Jesus is sovereign. He's, he's above all things with an authority that's given to him by the Father. And we learn also in this section that Jesus is also the, the head of the church. He's head of us. And I believe this text, because of who Jesus is and because of what he came to, did, to do, is just beckoning those that are his to come follow my example. So, like, what made Christ's first coming so powerful? Well, what it was was that this one who took on flesh 
was the very one that created not only what we can see, right? The earth, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, but also what we can't see, the heavenly spiritual realm. Jesus Christ, and this is what Paul's trying to get across, is Lord of all. This very thing is what Paul meant by the firstborn of all creation at verse 15. Paul wasn't in any way suggesting that Jesus Christ was somehow created, but that he, the one who we came now to worship this morning, he is the creator of all things, and he has all the rights and privileges over it. He is like the firstborn that talks about all through the Bible. He is the, the, um, the initiator. And therefore, the way he would look at it is the rightful king. And as Jesus now spoke in Genesis 1, we learn the vastness of space and all of the intricacies of creation that we talked about just a little bit earlier. He crafted into this masterpiece of his glory. And not only did he create all things, but the only reason, right, that this universe doesn't fly chaotically in a myriad of tangents, the reason that we stay on this flying, spinning, giant ball of earth and water and molten lava is because, Colossians 1.17, he's holding everything together. Sure, there's atomic forces and gravitational forces and even forces that we don't even understand yet. But the bond that holds it all together, that holds everything that exists into this unity, is the creator of that force, Jesus Christ. Do you just see this picture that Paul is painting of him? But it's almost like Paul is saying, wait, there's more. Even more than this, right, is that while humanity may have been like the, the pinnacle of the first creation, we find that like in Genesis 1, when he finally gets to mankind, he says, oh, it's very good. But the humanity of Jesus is the pinnacle of the history of all creation. And to make it even more overwhelming, he's the starting point of something special, new creation. When the second person of the Trinity broke into the human race, he also came on to take the mantle of the, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see, for Jesus in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, right? We, we learned that in there. And through him now, God was, was now able to reconcile himself with all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And he makes now this beautiful peace by the blood of his cross. You, you find that like in verses 19 through 20. Now, all who are drawn to Christ by faith, those who, who surrender and trust and make their allegiance to King Jesus, experience the hope of the gospel through reconciliation in his body of flesh, he says, by death in verse 22, and, and through his resurrection. This fact of history means that while he initiated creation, even after humanity rejected their creator, he provided the means by which people can now come into relationship with God in our rebellion. He made, he made peace through the blood of the cross, verse 20. And now we are and will ever for be holy and blameless and above reproach before God. All who have bent the knee by faith are delivered. We're delivered, he says in verse 13, from the domain of darkness and transform, transferred to the, the kingdom of the Son that he now loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
And people don't need to just hear this truth. They need to see this truth by people who, who take up the cross and in people who are willing to suffer in people now who are now saying, I will follow Christ. I will imitate him even in the deepest, darkest moments because I want to display the God of the universe. See, Paul's whole life was consumed in this overwhelming truth. He saw this immense and this stunning picture. He understood the reality and the, and the trajectory of our existence. And all of his life now was rearranged to help others to experience the same. Nothing would stop him, no matter how difficult it might get, even suffering, because he knew for a fact that his suffering was an opportunity for people to see this vast and beautiful picture. It's a powerful way for us to display Christ. It may not be our preferred way, if I'm really kind of being honest with you right now, but we don't always get to choose the part God asks us to play in displaying Christ. Paul knew that we will never live beyond the height of our view of Christ and his purposes. However large our view of him is, we will live passionately in proportion to it. That's why our view of him must keep growing. Everything rises and falls in your life based upon your ever-growing understanding of Christ. And that's what our world needs right now. People may not be looking into the, the vastness of space and capturing the declarations of God's glory that, that makes them feel small, but they just might see the declaration of his glory in us in the midst of a painful world. So what does this mean kind of practically? Well, let me, let me grab the fight, fight, or flight, or freeze thing to kind of help us think through this. What this means is that we don't have to fight. We don't have to fight our government. We don't have to find people. What I said before, we're never asked to do that. If you don't believe me, look at 2 Corinthians 10. We don't have to fight any of the leaders that are all around us. Again, God never asked us to create warriors for Christ. Every image within the New Testament, even the military image, was not given for us to create wars against our culture. We are to stand firm against the strong forces of evil all around us, but it isn't for war against people. We don't have to win a culture war. We're seeking to win the hearts and the minds of people by powerfully loving them and, and then graciously dismantling their wrong perspectives of who God is, even if it means that we must suffer so that they can see Christ in us. It means we don't have to flee from our culture. We must keep ourselves for sure unstained by the evil influences from our, from our culture and everything around us. We must remain set apart because we're to, we're to be holy, the Bible calls but we must be in our community so that they might see what it means to be set apart. I completely understand why people want to flee California. It's a mess. We could all run to Montana and get big houses and, and in some way buy these giant lots, these properties to avoid the social discomfort that we feel and the, the financial difficulty that we face. But if we leave, who remains in the, the disarray of our state to display Christ to our lost and hurting community. This area in which we live is where God has placed us to stand firm and that, that now we're going to be called to suffer with them so that they might, what? They might see Christ in us. 
But not only that, we don't have to freeze in the midst of like the sickness and death going on around us. We must be wise. We don't intentionally allow ourselves to become sick, right? We don't tempt God in that way. We love others by, by not flippantly doing things that somehow might get them sick. However, for those of us who are in Christ, we need not fear sickness or death. If we do get sick, we, we enter into it to make much of Christ. If we die, Paul says, there's only gain. And if we must enter into the sickness of others, we do so to put Christ on display. We, we put him on display in how we love others, not by protecting ourselves. And I would even say this because there's such a cry out there for it, not even trying to protect our personal rights in any kind of a way. And one last thought that I just want to connect to a story. We need to worry less, I think, about things over which we have no control and concern ourselves more with the things we can by now entering into these circumstances by bringing life. Last Wednesday after the riots in the Capitol, a, a teacher that is part of our church was sitting around the house with her husband and they were kind of unpacking the day. The husband who was definitely disheartened but also kind of fascinated by the way people acted and reacted to the events, he asked her, you know, what do you think about this? Now, it wasn't that she was oblivious, so what I'm about saying, she, she wasn't oblivious to it or not impacted by what took place, but she looked at him and said, you know, today, I really don't care about it. She went in to talk about her day with a kid in her class. She was saddened for this student. That day, she saw the brokenness of a kid who was facing some pretty serious health conditions and, and parents that had been neglecting. And she was more concerned with, with how she was going to enter into the suffering of that precious child. For her, the, the big question in her mind was whether she would, would call even the CPS in that moment. She was, she was wrestling with, with exactly what we've been talking about. Would she suffer with her students so that this kid might see Christ in her? She realized that she almost had no control over the events in our nation's capital. But she did have this amazing opportunity that she could enter so that a kid in our community might see Jesus. It isn't that we don't have a role to play in things that, like what happened in, in Washington, D.C., but it is so minute. Yet in front of us every day are opportunities to make a major impact by displaying Christ in the mess of our world. So what does this mean for us kind of in the, in the upcoming weeks? Well, starting in, a, in about a week, the greatness of Christ is what we're, we're really hoping to focus on as a church. For about 70 days, we're gonna, we're gonna hone in like a laser on the life of Christ. Specifically, we're gonna look at the last final months of his life. We want you to see and, and grasp a grand vision of Jesus. We want you to be gripped by it. All of the reading we will provide from Scripture will be saturated with the life of Christ. You will, you'll encounter him in the fullness of his deity and his humanity and in, even in his final act of love on the cross and reconciling humanity to himself. Our prayer for you is that in these 70 days, regardless of what you know about Christ, your view of him will become even more lofty. That we'll, you will choose not to fight and not to flight and, or not to freeze in this sovereign time in which God has placed us but that you would willingly walk into 2021, even in the sufferings of others or, or your own, so that Christ might be displayed through you. From the just majestic vision of Christ, 
I pray that you will become more resolute in your passion to follow him by displaying him even in suffering. So here's how I want to finish this morning. I want to pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians in verse 9 of chapter 1. And so if you could, just, just bow your heads with me. And I just want to pray this, this particular text over you. He said this, From the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Don't forget, I love you all. God bless every one of you. And hopefully we'll see you around soon. God bless.